This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello, welcome to an island, not the sparsely populated kind that Lauren Laverne invites us to each week, but instead a spot with a population density that exceeds London's and the place through which 70% of the bananas we munch through in the UK pass. On our panel this weekend, a man who forever reminds me how nerdy some of my friends are. A few years ago, I got an excitable text which breathlessly said... I think I've just seen the Conservative MP Connor Burns in the crowd at the Crucible. Moments later, having rewound his TV coverage, a still photo appears on my phone of the now international trade minister gazing at the bays in the audience watching the snooker. Is it an annual pilgrimage, Connor? It is. I've loved it since I was a, a kid, and it's a bit like politics, snooker, when all the reds have gone, when the yellow's gone, the blue's still there. <laughs> Connor is also a devotee of Coronation Street, and so has at least one thing in common with Lady Smith of Basildon, Angela Smith, Labour's leader in the Lords. But Angela, can you match Connor's enthusiasm? Have you visited both the old and the new Corrie sets? No, I've been trying to do a deal with Connor on this, because I've only visited the old set, but he's promising me that his next visit to the new set, I can go with him. Carolyn... That's the only cross-party cooperation we'll probably find in <laughs> politics at the moment. Carolyn Fairburn was awarded a damehood in June in recognition of her services to business. She is the Director-General of the business organisation, the CBI, which speaks on behalf of 190,000 businesses employing nearly 7 million people. Tell us about your trip to the palace. How was it? Oh, well, I went on Tuesday, and much to my children's delight, we had Prince William. Uh, They uh, were uh, goggle-eyed throughout. Um, It was a really, really lovely day, actually. Can you you tell us about the conversation you had? Um, Well, he was incredibly nice, actually. My children say that my arms were going everywhere, and I looked like I was at a cocktail party. Um, But he just has a way of... um, I think we talked about... um, I mean, I think... I'm not sure he entirely knew what I did. Um, And we did manage not to mention the B word, um, but we did talk about the work he does does in mental health and how much business is committed to making uh, changes there as well. So we packed a lot into about a minute. Tom Newton-Dunn's first job in journalism involved making tea for a certain Mr B. Johnson. How did he take it? Oh, dear. You've, you've, you've found that somewhere, have you? Yeah. Uh, so every day, this was at the Daily Telegraph when I was a skivvy, and he was the star economist, and he would say, he'd give me his internal credit card. So you pay for tea with little you know, money on a card. He'd say, take my card, go and get a cup of tea, and get one for yourself. So I'd trot down to the canteen, put the card in, two teas, please. There's not a penny on it, sir, I'm afraid. <laughs> I trot back with the teas. Here's your tea, Boris. Ah, cripes, thanks very much. Still no money on your card. Oh, cripes, I'm so sorry. <laughs> An interesting insight. Uh, Tom is now the occupier. Tom is now the occupier of one of the great offices of state of British journalism as political editor of The Sun. Oh, and this island that we're on this weekend, Portsea Island, the home of Portsmouth, the only only island city in the UK, and we are at the University of Portsmouth. Ladies and gentlemen, your Any Questions panel. Now, talking of the aforementioned B words, uh, our first question comes from uh, Dylan Peacock. Hi, Dylan. Hi, good evening. Um, the question that I'd like to ask is, how will a general election fix the mess that this country is in at the moment? 
So where are we this weekend? Even the delay has been delayed, or as Tim Shipman of the Sunday Times put it, even the deadlock is deadlocked in deadlock. Uh, I think the golden rule of Brexit has been every time there is a moment of apparent clarity, it's often rather misty than it first looks. Uh, let's start with a, a briefing, a sense of where we are, because the capacity to be baffled at the moment is huge. Tom Newton-Dunn, where are we this weekend? We are in a substantial mess. Uh, I would agree with my esteemed colleague Tim Shipman. Uh, we are blockage upon blockage. Uh, the, the most extraordinary thing is, uh, sometimes in British politics, one side of the island is blocked, the other side is uh, freer to move. Maybe the Tories in trouble, Labour can uh, make hay. Uh, there are three players, really, in this particular drama. Uh, there's the Labour Party, uh, there's the Conservative Party. Those two parties control the House of Commons, really. And there's the EU. At this current moment, nobody has a clue how to move forward. And they're all looking to each other to come up with a solution. Labour Party would like the EU to give them some sort of direction on how long the extension will be, uh, so they can then act accordingly. Boris Johnson wants the Labour Party to give him a general election so he can then act accordingly, uh, and you see this goes on. It, it is absolutely amazing. Uh, two or three days in British politics now. Someone said to me the other day, Brexit years are like dog years. Every year covering Brexit feels like seven covering every other British uh, political story. Uh, and we go back to, to Tuesday night, and this is how crazy it's really got. On Tuesday, the Prime Minister tried very hard to pass a withdrawal bill that the Labour Party blocked because they wanted a general election. Come Friday, the Prime Minister is withholding the very same withdrawal bill because he wants a general election that Labour want now to block because they want to return the withdrawal bill. And if you can make any sense of that, you're certainly smarter than I am. Conor Burns, the perspective from the government. Look, Dylan's question is one that many people up and down the length and breadth of this country will be asking. What purpose is there in a general election? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it couldn't be any worse than it now is. We've had in the past the rotten parliament. We now have the paralysed parliament. With the arithmetic in the House of Commons, we cannot move things forward. The Prime Minister wants a general election. The Leader of the Opposition says he wants a general election, but votes against a general election. He's like a sort of modern-day St. Augustine, give me an election, but just not yet. The fact is we are now being held back from our future by this inertia. This House of Commons, or its predecessor, but pretty much the same, gave the decision to you, the British people. And many of those members of Parliament who voted to give you that referendum did so on the basis that they didn't think you'd ever be silly enough, in their view, to vote for Brexit. But that's exactly what the British public did. And my sense when I'm out talking to people in my own constituency and indeed around the country is we want to get on with this. We want, as a country, to move on. We want a government that can return to a domestic agenda, focus on the things that people care about, their schools, their hospital, mm -hmm. put more police on the streets. And we cannot do this with this House of Commons. And the only route out of this is to put the decision back to you in a fresh general election on the 12th of December. Is, is that the best case you can make for a general election, that you've run out of better ideas? If anybody thinks... If anybody thinks for... If anybody thinks for a moment 
that this House of Commons, as it is currently constituted, is capable of getting us out of this mess, then they have not observed what is going on in the House of Commons. I see it every single day. They demand more time. We've been debating this for three and a half years. And I have to say, as I travel as an international trade minister, the sense from countries overseas is, what on earth are you doing to yourselves? We see enormous opportunities of bilateral trade agreements. We can't get on with those until we get Brexit done. Let's get the Labour perspective from uh, Angela Smith. And uh, would it be dreadfully and uncharitable, Lady Smith, to say that the only reason Labour are not keen on a general election is because you fear you might lose? Yes, it would be dreadfully uncharitable of you to say that. Um, I think it's just a political stunt from Boris Johnson. He came out of the vote on Monday evening when he just got, for the first time ever, they got a deal, had got a majority in the House of Commons. What he should have done then was introduce the bill in a reasonable time for debate. On Monday night, he was saying how significant the moment was. I think the word he said, how welcome this is, even joyful. He was saying how great it was. And now the very bill that could deliver that, he's taken away and won't let the House of Commons debate. I think one of the reasons Boris Johnson wants a general election, he wants to get rid of Conservative MPs that don't agree with him and try and get a House of Commons to do whatever he says. Now, the way democracy works and the way legislation works, you get a bill and you debate it, you look at it, you see if it can be improved. And that's what he fears. We've already seen him try to shut down Parliament with an unlawful prorogation. Um, And I think, as um, Tom said, the only person stopping this moving forward now, and I'm sorry, Connor, you say you cannot move things forward, the person not putting the bill before Parliament is Boris Johnson. But the argument that the government makes is that they are giving you more time than was the case a couple of days ago on the Um, condition that there's then a general election? Well, it wouldn't be more time, actually, because it's not down for debate next week. You then only got one week before you'd have to prorogue Parliament for general election. So the idea that you can get a bill of such constitutional significance through both houses of Parliament in four or five days is really rather silly. And if you look back, I think you'll find we had more time to debate a bill about wild animals in circuses that affected 19 animals than we're being given for this with a major constitutional issue about our future. Okay, back to Back to Dylan's question, though. Um, Can you explain in simple terms at what point Labour will be up for a general election? I think we need to be assured that we're not going to crash out of the EU. So So assured that that won't happen in January? Assured that that won't happen at the end of a transition period? It depends when we can have that assurance. I think that you have got a point there. The problem is that in the legislation as currently drafted, we could crash out at the end of transition period. I just think we need to be assured that our future is safe, that we're not going to be in a much worse position through crashing out of the EU. And that, w- that can be de- dealt with... So you would with. leave Boris Johnson there for a year? No, we, we... That, can, that can all be dealt with in dealing with the legislation, but you have to have the debate on the legislation. What you can't do is take it away and have a general election, which I have to say, I think most MPs, if they felt a general election would resolve the issue, they'd be quite happy. But it's not going to resolve the issue. The only thing that resolves the issue is dealing with the legislation to give effect to the deal. Nothing else can resolve it. Let's bring in uh, Dame Carolyn Fairburn. Uh, The thing we constantly hear from business Mm. is a desire for certainty. Uh, There isn't a great deal of it about. Uh, There's very little of it about. And I think what 
uh, business feels and it's the same as I think most of us feel is this really, really has to stop. You know, we have to have... What has to stop? Uh, this gridlock uh, total. I mean, as in the question, we are just stuck. And I think what we really want is to see politicians working together, finding ways to trust each other so we can make a decision and move on. And I do think it is possible that a general election is the only way to do it. And I think what business would say is that whatever it takes, do it. Um, It does feel, though, as though our politicians are almost grabbing defeat from the jaws of victory. There was a glimpse of hope last week when finally a deal passed. I mean, what businesses are saying to me, because the economy is really feeling it now, is get a deal. Get a deal, agree it, pass it, move on. The heavy lifting needs to start now on the future. Is it the view of the CBI that the government's proposed deal is a good one? Business can work with it. I mean, I think the honest truth of it is that it's that not perfect. It didn't sound like a yes. It's, it's, listen, nothing is perfect here. So there are things that business would like to be different about it. It doesn't give frictionless trade. It doesn't give enough clarity around the future. It doesn't do anything for services, which are hugely important for our economy. But we have to move on. And if this is the way we do it, I think that the deal uh, is something that business could work with. We all have to compromise, take the decision and move on. When, when or if we get into a general election campaign, do you guys swing in behind anyone? Oh, um, CBI, we've been around 60 years. We stay apolitical. I think the thing that we are most concerned about, and actually Connor touched on it, is that we have massive opportunities to build this economy, to fix a lot of the problems that we have in the economy around regional inequality, around our health system, our education system, how we pay for it. Uh, But to do that, we need to have the economy firing on all cylinders. And we will work with all parties to get the policies to make that happen. If there is a thought about Brexit that you are tempted to enlighten the nation with, Anita Arnand awaits your call after the Saturday broadcast of uh, Any Questions, a 45-minute programme at 2 o'clock on Saturday. 03700 100 444 is the telephone number. Lines opening at 12.30. 03700 100 444. Let's take our next question, please. Hello, uh, Anne Coleman. Would we be so sympathetic to the 39 immigrants if they had survived the journey? Angela Smith. Um, I would love to be able to say that it wouldn't make any difference, but I think it probably would. I think the tragedy of what we've seen, though, is a tragedy that so many people go through. And if you just think what went through those people's minds as they were in their last moments in that container, and then think how many other people leave their countries and go through that kind of journey. You know, we've seen it on the, in the ships, we've seen it on small boats. People are risking their lives, they're paying their life savings to go to something that they hope will be better for them. In many cases, it isn't, and in too many cases, they're paying with their lives. Um, I heard the Essex Police Chief Constable speaking about this on the radio um, yesterday. His voice was breaking with emotion, and the Red Cross had to go in to help the emergency services deal with how they feel about what they've been confronted with. So I think there's a lot can be done through legislation and support, but... 
I think what it comes down to is understanding where our place is in the world. And just saying, no, we don't want people to come in, or yes, we can give assignments to people, that on its own is never going to be enough. And I think one of the tragedies of Brexit is that we're, we're moving away from an organisation that we could work in partnership to try and address the problem. I'm not particularly keen. I think the EU hasn't always been that great at dealing um, with the refugee um, issue and asylum seekers, but this has to be a global answer. Countries working together, coming together, because when people flee conflict, they flee poverty, um, they are putting their lives in danger, and too often there's tragedies like this, and there are probably many, many more that we never hear about. Tom Newton Dunn. Well, to answer your question very honestly, would we be as sympathetic if those poor 39 people had survived? No, I don't think we would have been. And the reason is because the nation has uh, immigration laws and uh, they were obviously trying to enter the, the country illegally. Now, that's not to take away from the fact that what happened to them was absolutely appalling. And listening to some of the news reports very recently of the text messages that uh, some of the victims were sending their final text messages home to their families saying, I'm running out of breath, I can't breathe anymore, uh, is absolutely dire. The people who are responsible for these 39 people's deaths, and I think we need to be really clear about this, are the people who put them in the back of that lorry. It's not the government, it's not the previous government, it's the people who facilitated them and their passage to their deaths. And the, some of the reporting in the last few days has been mesmerizing from, from my point of view. You, you, you watch the incredible industrial scale of moving people illegally uh, across the, the channel, often to ports like Perfleet and Essex, where the tragedy took place. Uh, stories, for example, in the middle of the night, minibuses regularly turn up outside these ports uh, and take these people away. Vast numbers of, of people who've entered the country illegally in the back of shipping containers or what have you uh, are then moved away. It's an enormous problem, and it is exactly that problem which is killing these people, and that problem needs to be stopped in every which way we can, and it, we can start by putting in more resources. I know it's the obvious thing to say, more money for the border force, more money for the National Crime Agency who go after these large-scale gangs who may well be responsible for this. They need to get their act together and get their act together pretty fast. We should emphasise, shouldn't we, that this uh, remains a, a live investigation. There's a huge number of facts about the specific case that, uh, that we don't yet know. But on that broader issue, in particular the question from Anne, uh, your reflections, Dame Carolyn Fairburn. Um, well, it's, it's absolutely horrifying and, and totally heartbreaking. I mean, I think what comes over so strongly is here were people who were the loved ones of, um, of their, their daughters, they are sons, they are, they are relatives, and we're hearing the, the really, really human stories. And um, I, I think that, again, to answer the question, I think that we have to be truthful about that. It is, it is it has roared onto our front pages as a story because of the terrible, terrible tragedy. Um, I think there are some phases in terms of how we respond. We must keep recognising that these are people and that we must support our emergency services and we must really recognise the human scale of this tragedy. But very quickly, I think we do need to start asking some absolutely fundamental questions about what is 
going on that creates this desperation for people to take that kind of risk. Um, we need to ask questions about uh, what's happening at our own borders. You know, suddenly we are hearing these stories um, about people who have taken those risks and are coming to our shores, and I don't think we really knew. Um, but then I think that there are some other really fundamental questions we need to ask about the world being on the move. The world is on the move. Migration has become one of the defining issues of our age, whether because of war, because of economic deprivation, um, because of reasons that are really making people feel that their lives are unbearable. And what do we do about that? What do we collectively, uh, as people, do about the scale of that desperation? How can we start to make a difference to it? Connor Burns. I obviously agree with large amounts of what the other panellists have said. This is a, a harrowing uh, tragedy and the questioner gets under the skin of our conscience by posing the question she does. We have a, an incredibly proud track record in the United Kingdom of offering sanctuary to people fleeing appalling circumstances. I think, for example, of the Ugandan Asians fleeing the despicable regime of Idi Amin in the, in the 70s. I spoke to the, Home, to the Home Secretary this afternoon. This is obviously a live and ongoing inquiry. And I think we should all pay tribute to Essex Police for the way they are handling it. And the facts will emerge over the coming days. I just want to say two, two other things quickly. I was very proud to sit on the bill committee of the Modern Day Slavery Act introduced by Theresa May as Home Secretary. I think that will go down as one of her great legacies as Home Secretary, which tightened sentences and made sure that the agencies have the powers they need to tackle the evil people who engage in this sort of activity if this turns out to be the case. The other thing I want to say, I'm incredibly proud of us as a country and us as a coalition government previously uh, for what we've done on international aid. And this is often criticised by people, so we should spend it at home. What we're trying to do is intervene and make people's lives better and give them opportunities in some of the poorest places on earth to stop people feeling that they need to move. And I'm really proud that the United Kingdom has got behind that international development uh, model and is actually helping people in their own countries. What about the issue, Connor Burns, that Tom Newton Dunn touched on, which is the whole question around border force staffing and in particular the criticism that's been made in the last few days that there's been too much of a focus on the Dover-Calais route and less of a focus on other ports whether it be the likes of the ports here in Portsmouth or those uh, in Essex and on the on the Thames estuary and that that's creating a an opportunity for those who might want to try and make a perilous journey to come in via via a way where they think there might be a greater chance of getting into the UK. So, look, the resources question can, can always be asked. We're currently in the process of recruiting an additional 1,000 new Border Force staff to help with that. But I'm reluctant at this moment, particularly as I'm a minister, to, to speculate on whether staff issues uh, would have done anything on this. I'd rather wait till the facts emerge rather than speculate. Any thoughts uh, for Anita Arnand on uh, any answers? Appreciated 03700 100 444. 03700 100 444. Let's move on to a, a different topic now and hear from Michael Borwood. Hello, Michael. Hello. It's, it's in fact Michael Boltwood, but good evening. My apologies. 
Should the junior royals follow the monarch's adage, never explain, never complain? This in the week where we have seen uh, Prince Harry giving this very frank interview to uh, ITV and the very distinctive approach that the the two princes are taking in terms of their attitude in particular towards the media. Uh, Tom Newton-Dunn. It was a groundbreaking interview. There's no doubt about that. Um, Tom Bradby, uh, who did it for ITV News, used to work in... uh, I shared a room with him in in the... House of Commons when he was uh, ITV News's political editor, a fine journalist and an exceptional interview. And uh, just briefly, he gets brilliant interviews uh, by being nice to people, by talking to them humanely, not by bashing them over the head, Jeremy Paxman style, and I would just pay a tiny bit of tribute to, to him on that. And I'm not sure any other interviewer would have got that. And I say that because he managed to unlock something that we've never seen before, uh, which was very senior members of the royal family, pouring their hearts out and, as you say, explaining and indeed complaining. Now, is that something that we expect of the royal family in in the 21st century or should they uh, um, be stiff upper lip and and get on with the job and never look back? I suspect it's probably a little bit of both. For me personally, I fear that perhaps that cowboy Meghan and Harry have been doing a little bit too much complaining as well as explaining. my newspaper, many newspapers like it, many TV stations like it, are intensely interested in what the royal family do. And, yes, yeah, sometimes we cross the mark, and it's, and it's wrong when we do cross the mark, and we apologise for it when we do. But we only pay them a lot of interest because that's what the public want us to do, because they are as interested in the royal family as we might be. Now, that attention can bring with it tremendous benefits, such as when those members of the royal family give tremendous publicity to really important charities such as mental health which is you know, prince harry is, and prince william too have been brilliant about there is a flip side there is a downside and it involves an invasion of privacy and that's all very unfortunate when it happens and, and we do overstep that mark but it's sort of part of the, the package and i feel for them because certainly one of those two weren't born into that role but it's not something they haven't known about for quite some time does it make you stop and think when you hear Meghan Markle, as she did reflecting in that interview, that her British friends were suggesting that she shouldn't marry Prince Harry because of tabloids like your employer. I'm not quite sure she said tabloids like my employer, but I accept your general point, Chris, that the, the, the media are, uh, do spend an awful long time writing about royals. Look, Enoch Powell famously said about politicians, that a politician blaming the media is like a a ship's captain blaming the sea. And like it or lump it, it's kind of what we are, it's kind of what we always have been. We've we've gone through excesses in the past, which are pretty ugly. Uh, We've now rode back on an awful lot of those, and I'm very pleased we have. But it's a blatant fact, I'm afraid. If you don't want to have your life scrutinised and to have a lot of people paying a lot of attention to what you do, you don't have to marry a member of the royal family. Connor Burns, your reflections on this one. The questioner mentioned uh, Her Majesty the Queen, and I think I'd like to start by saying how often I reflect, as I'm sure many of us do, how blessed we are as a country to have had this lady who has devoted her life uh, to exemplary public service, and she is an example to us all. I have considerable sympathy for 
what Prince Harry said. I think it is impossible not to remember the terrible tragedy that befell his life as a little boy when his mother was so tragically killed. That must have had and has had a lasting impact uh, on him. And I think it took considerable courage to speak of his own mental health challenges. And I, as someone who's suffered in our family with serious mental health problems, uh, I think what both Prince William and Harry have done to remove the stigma from mental health in their campaigning work um, is absolutely fantastic, and I salute both of them for it. There is, as Tom says, of course, a balance in this. The free press is the cornerstone of a free society, and I will defend to the death the right of the press to conduct their job as they need to. It's interesting, isn't it, though, because we heard those reflections from from Prince Harry, and he's clearly very critical of the media, nervous around the media, and yet the contrast with his brother is very striking. They both suffered the death of their mum at a very, very young age, and yet... The Duke of Cambridge seems that much more relaxed, by all accounts, speaking to colleagues who go on these press trips. He'll go to the back of the plane and have a laugh and a joke. He seems to be approaching that, that whole business of how he conducts himself in public and his relationship with the press in a very different way from his brother. Well, look, they're brothers. They're not the same person. People deal with things in different ways, and Prince Harry has clearly uh, struggled with what happened to him, and it is understandable. Um, and I, you know, I defend his right to, to speak out, but equally, I defend the rights of the free press. Captain Fairburn, is it wise, do you think, to pick up on Michael's question, to, to give interviews like this? Because I guess the potential downside from uh, the Duke of Sussex, Sussex, Sussex's perspective is that, well, we're having this kind of conversation, yeah. that we're chewing over uh, how he's handling himself and all the rest of it, and he isn't getting the privacy that, that he would appear to crave. I mean, I have to say, I, I, I really feel for them. Uh, you know, I, I, when I look at uh, Harry and Meghan, I do just see a, a young couple who have just had a baby, who are in the spotlight in a quite extraordinary way. Meghan has, you know, she has moved here. Uh, she is, I think they're both coming to terms with what it means to be a role model in a very different era where you are, I think, very exposed and very challenged in everything you do. And I think they're feeling their way. And, 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 and what I, I, I suppose I also see is, and I see it in the young people who work uh, in, in my organisation, we are in a new world, I think, where people are much more honest about how they feel about things. And actually, I think that is a good thing. I do think that is a good thing. And the fact that Harry is talking about his own mental health challenges, actually, um, that, I think, is healthy. And it's the way he is trying to be a role model. Uh, I I respect it. I feel for them. Um, I think the fact that they're now taking a break from public life, frankly, we all do need to put family first sometimes, whether we're royal family or not. Um, So I have to say my uh, heart and sympathy is with them. Um, And a final perspective on this one from Lady Smith. I do wonder if we feel a bit uncomfortable when somebody um, is so obviously struggling and yet we think, oh, they've got a privileged life, everything must be fine. And I have to say, perhaps, you know, I think you're becoming an old cynic, Tom. You don't have to marry somebody into the royal family. I like to think they married for love. I think everybody does. And you don't choose who you fall in love with. 
And I think what we see in these interviews is a couple that care for each other enormously. Um, but I think we, as a country, have underestimated the impact of that small boy walking in the glare of the world behind his mother's um, coffin at the funeral. And that clearly has had an impact on his mental health for his life. And it's almost like we're quite happy for people to talk about campaign on mental health if we do so in the abstract. But when you say, actually, it's me and I'm hurting, people don't like it and people feel uncomfortable. Um, I think the royal family's moved on. Like Connor, I have enormous regard for the Queen. I think she hasn't put a foot wrong through her reign. Um, but the style has changed. And I, you know, we, we, we don't know what the Queen thinks on many things. There's always been speculation in the press. We don't know. Harry tells us how he feels. And my sense is the public warns him and quite like that. And I say I feel enormous sympathy for them both. But there is this thing I think people have to realise that whatever your background, mental health can affect anybody. And they're making us all realise that. You're listening to Any Questions on Radio 4. I'm Chris Mason. On the panel uh, this weekend, we have Government Minister Connor Burns. We have uh, Lady Smith of the Labour Party, who you just heard, Dame Carolyn Fairburn of the business organisation, the CBI, and Tom Newton-Dunn, who is political editor of The Sun. Uh, this is the awkward bit where I speak to you, dear listener, and say that um, you know we'd love an invite from you. If you have a, a village, a town, a school, a church hall that you think might be able to accommodate us uh, one week, then head to the Any Questions website, and you can fill in a little form there, uh, and uh, you can invite us uh, along. Any.questions at bbc.co.uk. And if you're thinking right now, oh, yeah, but they wouldn't come to where we are, challengers, send us that email, because we want to go to more villages, more towns, more places that, well, perhaps we haven't visited in the last 71 years. There are still places we haven't been to, even though we've been going uh, for 71 years. Let's take another question from Andy Taylor. Hello, Andy. Evening. Hi. Um, question is, do too many young people go to university as opposed to apprenticeships? And I think I'm right in saying, Andy, you're a careers advisor, aren't you? I'm a cruise advisor. We'll we'll uh, come back for your perspective after we've uh, heard from the uh, panel. Um, We had statistics, didn't we, uh, just a matter of weeks ago that for the first time the 50% threshold had been crossed in England of uh, young people going to university and 20 years ago the then Prime Minister Tony Blair set that as an aspiration that half of young adults should go into higher education. I guess a perspective from business is worthwhile on this. Uh, Caroline Furban? Well, I mean, it's been the most staggering change, and I think a real achievement, actually, that we have so many young people who've had the chance to go to university, they've had a chance to come to um, you know, great places, we're in, we're in one now, uh, and I think we should celebrate it. Um, but the, it is also true that we have, I think, a piece missing in our educational system, which is how we create that vocational path, that apprenticeship route, um, the skills that actually we're going to need for a very different world of the future. I mean, I think it's actually extremely exciting where we are uh, at the moment in the UK, that we have the opportunity, I think, to lead the world in so many areas, from uh, renewable energy to creative industries, fantastic and very strong around here. Um, These are all skills that can't necessarily be taught at university. And if you look around the world, some other countries are getting this more right than we are. So a country like Germany has absolutely at the core of its education system an apprenticeship vocational route. And we've tried and tried to create it, and we haven't quite cracked it. And now is an opportunity to do that. So um, at the CBI, we 
hugely support apprenticeships, the idea that you don't have to go to university. Actually, you don't have to take on any debt. It has a lot of attractions for young people. Um, we have some models that are now coming where you can take uh, alternatives to A-levels that take you down a craft route. Uh, you can learn uh, engineering that way. You can learn digital skills that way. So I, I think, rather than say that there are too many young people going to university. I'd rather put it the other way round. Let's create more opportunities for young people to have different routes, not necessarily a purely academic one. Mm-hmm. But we're going to have to... Can I say... We're going to have... We're going to, have to, we're going to have to crack one other thing, and it's absolutely fundamental. There must be parity of esteem between the two, and we have to value each equally. Can and you I have parity of esteem, of though, that. if you have governments that are constantly saying that a higher figure, a higher proportion going to university is a good thing? Because well, are they not in contradiction? Well, I don't think we need to um, criticise a university education to make uh, an apprenticeship, vocational education, fantastic. We can do both. Uh, So um, uh, let's not condemn that, but let's really make this fly, let's make it sing, let's tell our kids about it, and I think we can really make it work. Connor Burns. I have two universities in my own constituency, Bournemouth University and the Arts University Bournemouth, and I spend a lot of time uh, when I'm in the constituency visiting those, and I see young people who have worked really hard to get to university, who are laying the foundations through those degrees to join the workforce and make a productive contribution to our economy. And I'm always slightly nervous. I went to university in the 1990s. Then it was one in seven who went to university. It's now one in two. I'm very nervous about those of us who had that opportunity to go to university, then seeking to pull the ladder up behind us and say that more young people today shouldn't go to university. But Carolyn is absolutely correct. I'd written on the paper here, dignity. For too long in this country, we have looked down at those who don't go down the academic route. And actually, it's the skills that come out in the non-academic route, the technical route, that we rely on to thrive uh, as an economy. And, and how, how do you shift that then? Because that's a, that's a cultural shift, it is, isn't absolutely. it? Which is quite a hard thing so, for, for government or for business or for anyone to shift. So I was literally coming to that. You, you change that by reforming technical education, which is why the government is introducing the new T-levels, which are a high-quality technical alternative to uh, A-levels, and why I was particularly pleased that the Prime Minister, when he came to office indeed during the campaign to become Prime Minister, committed to put an extra $400 million into funding of 16 to 19 education. That has been under a spent for far too long. That's how you do it. You have more resource going in, you reform the system so that there is dignity, equal dignity, in going down the technical route as there is going down the, the, um, the academic route. Angela Smith. Um, I'm one of those, when I got my degree, I went to a polytechnic. So the middle year um, of, well, four-year course, but third year, you worked. So you did academic study and I had a year in employment. And that worked rather well. I would worry about seeking to address the problem by simply reducing the numbers who go to university because my fear is it would be people like him from my background, the poor kids, the ones who have less money, particularly when it's so expensive now, that would be the ones that lose out. Apprenticeships are changing, and Carolyn's absolutely right about having parity of esteem. But that means employers have to say, when somebody comes to them with an apprenticeship, that's as valuable to me as an employer. It's because so many employers want degrees. That's why young people want to do degrees. But if governments are constantly saying, and, and your, your party, when it was in government, yeah. that it wanted a greater and greater proportion of people to go to university... To and come back to the point Chris, of what's kind of that, that yeah. doesn't help, does it, with the parity well, of the Well, it depends question. what kind of talk, 
courses you're talking about. And one of the problems is that we have to expand from the background of people that are coming to university. And my fear is that when you're talking about coming out with £9,000, £10,000 debt, you're reducing the background from sort of a narrow pool of people who can go to university. So it's getting the balance. One thing that shocked me in statistics I saw recently is how few, well, what what a large proportion of people who do apprenticeships don't complete them. And if I've seen where governments put money, I'd say put the money into finding out why they don't complete their apprenticeships and make sure you know, that we can address those problems. But I think it's getting that balance, and I think employers have to be part of the solution as well as governments. Employers have to recognise what skills do you want, work with government, and recognise if somebody's got those skills from wherever they've got them, whether it's a course like mine that was part employment, part study, or studying whilst you're working, they have a value to an employer. And I think the key does lie with that partnership between government and employers. Chris, just, just one really, uh, really important point here. Um, Andrew said something that wasn't quite correct there. There are actually now more people from poorer backgrounds going into university since the introduction of fees than there were before fees came in. I check that out, Connor, because I think that one of the things I'm seeing is I'm t- people start, but not everybody finishes the course, and people often come out. I'm talking to, I've been talking to some young people recently, and I'm really worried that this is putting people off increasingly. It's the debt. And also, they then look at what employment they can get and think, well, if I go for the threshold... I've got to pay but, so but do, much but money do back. Check it, it is actually true. I will check, but I just think we've got to expand the people going to university from all backgrounds and the courses that lead them to get the right employment as well. Tom Newton Dunn. Well, I, I'm slightly sceptical about saying this uh, sitting inside the Student Union of the University of Portsmouth, but uh, I went to university, I uh, got a degree in English literature, it was a Scottish university, so I spent four years there and I had a wonderful time. I read lots of really interesting books, but it was almost completely useless to the, what I've gone on to do for the rest of my life. I've forgotten all the books I've ever read, and it taught me absolutely nothing for journalism. Journalism is all about pithy, tight, eloquent expression. English literature is about long, flowery words. Um, the reason I went to university is because I think that's what was expected of me. That's what decent middle-class kids did, and if you didn't go, there was probably something wrong with you. Uh, and that absolutely still is a stereotype that exists. And I agree very much with Caroline and, and Connor that we need parity of aspiration, absolutely. If you want to go to university, great. But if you want to do something else that, that skills you up, then you really should be encouraged socially as much as everything else. We've got a productivity problem in Britain. Productivity has flatlined for about 10 years, and it's one of the reasons why we're suffering quite considerably economically, and we're beginning to fall behind, certainly, the, the Far East and some of the big tiger economies out there. So all these extra kids going to university, breaking the famous Blair 50% target, they're not producing people with brilliant new skills. If they were, the productivity problem would be a lot better. Um, Angela Smith. Well, when I was going to university, you, you, you left home and you went away. You lived, at home, you lived away from home with friends. You got a flat. And it was that maturity part. I think a lot of young people now going to university live at home. I think that's a big difference in giving people the skills to go out into employment. Quick final word, Tom Newton, on this before we return to our questionnaire. And I sound like a stuck record asking this because I've asked everyone it, but everyone's made this point, so I just wonder how you do it. This whole business of parity of esteem and how you get there. Lots of people on panels like this say it, but we're probably saying it 10 years ago as well. 
you have to bust open down the doors of opportunity every single uh, given way. There's no really easy way. I'm, I'm particularly squeamish about quotas. I don't think that particularly helps. I think it undermines uh, often the, the, the cause of the people you're, you're trying to help. One thing we're doing on the Sun, for example, a, a, a very small little point, uh, is that we have a, a, a now apprenticeships. Uh, and to apply for an apprenticeship on the Sun, which is about three months long, you specifically must not have a university degree. We don't accept people with university degrees. You have to have come into life the hard way. It's interesting. Uh, let's quickly return to Andy. Andy, you're a careers advisor. Your reflections on what you've heard and, and your, your overall view in answering your own question. Um, well, as a careers advisor, I work with young people, but I also work with many employers. And what employers are saying all the time is that they face critical skill shortages, particularly in STEM, engineering, digital, and they just can't attract enough young people um, to fill those vacancies. Um, so I think what might help is to make it easier for employers to get into schools, to get into colleges, and uh, so that them can get that sense of parity. Thank you for that. We're going to squeeze in one last question before we wrap up. Hi. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Adam Hawthorne here. With the launch of a non-Brexit news channel, <laughs> when will we get a non-Brexit any questions? Connor Burns. As soon as uh, this parliament votes for the Prime Minister's deal and we have a general election <laughs> on the 12th of December and we finally move on. <laughs> Uh, that's the new beyond only his second week, realising that I'd left a giant door open for a government minister to score a, score a goal. Um, Lady Smith. Um, I think it might be some time yet. No. The idea that if you've got true. this deal through, that's the end of it. It's not. It's going to go on and on. There'll be trail deals, deals to get. This isn't flash in the pan. I think it's taken too long to get to this point for a number of reasons, and I think people are getting fed up with it. But trust me, the people probably getting more fed up are some of the politicians. Every time you go anywhere, all you get to talk about is Brexit. Um, so, I, unfortunately, I think it'll be some time yet before we aren't talking about Brexit. I think it's going to be with us for a long time to come. Well, and that's not about not leaving. That's, we'll leave. We'll leave with a deal and we'll still be talking about it. There was a thing doing the rounds on social media this week that said it's 2092 and the British Prime Minister is heading to Brussels asking for another Brexit extension. <laughs> no one can quite remember where the tradition began. <laughs> but it draws the crowds of tourists nonetheless. And I read that and thought, yeah, Tom and I will probably be there reporting it as well. Um, Carolyn Fairburn. Uh, well, I, I did see, I, I know that Jacob Rees-Mogg has described uh, where we are now as being in purgatory. Uh, and then if you look up how long purgatory lasts, it's apparently between 1,000 and 2,000 years, uh, <laughs> according to uh, ancient law. But um, uh, no, no, I mean, I, I think it will be a while before Brexit uh, disappears, but I think it needs to uh, be in a very different place in our national conversation. So at the moment, uh, it is uh, totally divisive. Um, we haven't got uh, a consensus about what we want. We need to be able to move on to a place where we talk about this uh, and the kind of Brexit we want and the kind of country we're going to be on the basis of evidence and not ideology and that would be a much better place and conversation to and have. And in 20 seconds, Tom Newton-Dunn. 
Angela Smith has just handed me her phone, and she's pulled out a tweet in which is a picture of two old ladies. One of them says, I see they delayed Brexit again. Do you think they'll have a second referendum? The other one says, I hope so. I was too young to vote in the first one. <laughs> in and short, with that, thank you, and uh, thank you for listening from Portsmouth, and we'll speak to you in Liverpool next week.